Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Mark 14, 32 through 51. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth around his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, give us ears to hear. Give me the right words to preach. Purify what is said today. May it be May it be chiseled and sharpened and polished in indisputable truth. And Father, give us hearts that are open to receive this majestic text and what it teaches. Father, send your Holy Spirit among us. Anoint me with the Spirit that I might speak your words. And anoint our ears and hearts with the Spirit that we might receive them to your glory. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So, our text today is in the thick of the passion narrative, the the story of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. Last week, we saw Jesus celebrating the Passover with his disciples, having that last meal. And we are following right along from that. They have just left the Passover And they have now headed to a special place where Jesus spent time 
called the Garden of Gethsemane. Just before the passage that Sarah read, and Jesus warns the disciples that they are all going to fall away because a shepherd is about to be struck. And Peter boldly says, never me. It won't be me. Even if I have to die, I won't. And Jesus says to Peter, I'll tell you the truth, before the rooster crows two times, you will deny me three times. After that, we come to Gethsemane. And then after Gethsemane, we have the betrayal and the arrest. And we have the trial where he is convicted of blasphemy. And then we have Peter denying Jesus three times and the rooster crowing twice, just as Jesus said. And that is the text that uh, the, 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 this week is, is focused on, but we can't deal with every single one of those pieces in detail. And so uh, I have decided to focus our message today on Gethsemane, on that prayer that Jesus prayed to his father in Gethsemane. And there is a reason for this. This is the fulcrum. This is the hinge of the entire uh, passage. It is because of what is decided and determined in the prayer at Gethsemane that everything else happens. You see, if the Father said, I am going to deliver you, nothing would have happened. It is because it was the will of the Father to deliver the Son into the hands of sinners that everything that follows, follows. And so we need to focus on Gethsemane because that is where everything happens. Gethsemane is disturbing. If I were to tell you what words kind of kept coming to my mind as I mulled over this passage, it's that Gethsemane is disturbing. This is a scary text, a, a frightening text. A famous theologian of the last century named Rudolf Otto wrote a book called The Idea of the Holy. And he coined uh, a phrase, or at least he made uh, famous a phrase about what it means when we encounter holy. He called it the mysterium tremendum. The mysterium tremendum. The tremendous mystery, the terrible mystery. He was examining all these different encounters in different cultures of, of, of the presence of the holy and of being in the presence of holiness. And he recognized that, that it, it, it goes above reason. It's, it's super rational. It, it doesn't quite fit into description. It defies the ability to articulate. But in a sensational sense, there is a, an encounter, an experience of the awful, the fearfulness, of holiness, but also at the same time mixed in with it a fascination, an intrigue, a desire to be close to it. The mysterium tremendum is the awful and the fascinating brought together and kind of twisting the heart. What we have when we come to Gethsemane is the mysterium tremendum. It is repelling and riveting. It is, it is absolute horror, but somehow beautiful. In Gethsemane, we come to the gospel with all its gravity, all of its weight. As we stare at this text, it sinks you. 
into the depths of the mystery of God. This text searches our soul. This text sifts us of unignoble thoughts. You come to this text, and it either weights us to the gospel, or it bounces us off. You see, in Gethsemane, we discover and we see in the starkest terms God's immutable determination to save sinners. Now, the word immutable, I know, is not a word that we use very often, and I I thought about using a more common word, but immutable is the right word because immutable means unable to change. God's will is so set and so determined to save sinners that nothing can turn his mind can change his will. In Gethsemane, God's immutable determination to save sinners is displayed. And so what I want us to do today is just to place ourselves at the boundary of the Garden of Gethsemane and to peek in and to look at this most awesome prayer between Jesus and his Father and to see In five moments, the mysterium tremendum, the immutable determination of God to save sinners. We are going to see it in the relationship. We are going to see it in the request. We are going to see it in the restraint. We are going to see it in the relinquishment. And we are going to see it in the resolve that follows. Let us now look carefully at these five moments that show the immutable determination of God to save sinners. Let us look at the relationship. Jesus prays. He said, Abba, Father, verse 36. What we see in these words, Abba, Father, is the perfect, eternal, joyous, loving relationship between God the Father and God the Son brought into expression. Jesus calls God Father. Unlike anyone else in his culture, he knew God as Father. The reason that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray is because Jesus prayed like no one else. And most distinctive to Jesus' prayers was he said, Father. And you can go through the Gospels and you can see Jesus always referring to God in heaven as Father. And then, twice in this Gospel, we hear God the Father speak back at the baptism And at the transfiguration, God spoke from the heavens to this person in history, Jesus, and calls him beloved son, my cherished son, my one and only son. God the Father looks down at the son and delights and calls him the one who makes him well-pleased. 
In John chapter 17, verse 5, we hear these words of Jesus in prayer. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, it's a perfect relationship that had no beginning. Forever, the Father and the Son looked at each other and adored one another and loved one another and fulfilled one another. Immense, perfect satisfaction in the relationship existed between the Father and the Son. The Father could not be more proud of His Son than He is and has always been. And the Son, Jesus, could not be more delighted and more secure in the Father's love than He is. It has never been questioned. It has never been assaulted. It is perfect. But more than that, Jesus in this prayer cries, Abba. Abba, Father. Abba is a special word. It is a, it is a word for your father that comes from childlikeness. It's, it's trusting. It's tender. It's believing. There's a lot of debate about the best way to translate Abba. It means dad. Or even in its emotional sweetness and trustfulness, it, it can mean daddy. It means hero. That's what the word daddy means. When your kid says daddy, saying hero. You see, Dads, the job description of dads is they rescue their kids. The heart of dads is they rescue their kids. They protect them. This prayer hits the father at his weakest point. My cherished, beloved child is praying, Daddy, save me. And even so, even so, God is determined to save sinners. Now let us look at the request. Jesus prays, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. The cup is God's wrath. Listen to these words in Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. 
You see, this cup that is being spoken of in the Garden of Gethsemane is this cup that is being described in Psalm 75. It is the cup of God's anger at sin. It is a cup that has been filled with his just judgment upon sin and rebellion. It is frothing with God's judgment. We filled this cup. All our sinners and fall short of the glory of God. Our disobedience, our rebellion, our self-centeredness has filled this cup. Our failure to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Our desire not to love our neighbor as ourselves fills this cup. And it is brimming with God's just anger at our disobedience and our rebellion. This cup is for sinners. Righteousness declares that sinners drink the cup of God's judgment. It's not for the one who makes God well pleased. It's not for the one that God is most delighted in. That God looks down and breaks open the heavens and said, that's my boy and I am proud of him. Second thing I want you to see in the request is that the cup is in the Father's hand. The request is made to the Father, remove. You are holding the cup. That is confirmed in Psalm 75. In the hand of the Lord there is a cup. This cup is in the Father's hands. That is why Jesus prays to him, remove this cup. Do you understand what this means? The Father has to hand this cup to the Son. He has to volitionally put the cup in front of the Son. The Father has to pour it. That's his awful job. The Father has to pour the cup of his wrath upon his beloved Son. He has to pour it. He has to pour it all the way down until it's empty. Until it's drained. Until Jesus drinks it to the dregs. He has to hold it and pour it. it it's like putting... Your, it's like being in that awful situation when you have to take your kid to the doctor and you know they're going to get shots. And you've put them there and you know that they're going to look at you like, why did you let this happen to me? Why did you let me get stabbed with a shot? But so much worse. So indescribably worse. It wasn't a shot. It was a cross. Even so, God is determined to save sinners. Now let's go to the third moment and look at the restraint Jesus prays to his Father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. 
Jesus knows all things are possible for the one he's praying to. He has demonstrated this in miracles. You remember the father with the boy with the the demon that was throwing him into the fire and into the water. And the, the, the father comes and says, if you can do anything, help me. And Jesus rebukes that father and says, if, if all things are possible for him who believes. So he has demonstrated it when he heals the child from the demon. He shows all things are possible. Moreover, he teaches this. This is foundational to his teaching. When the rich young ruler walks away, brokenhearted because he was, set, he was told, sell all that you own, give to the poor, and follow me. Jesus explained to his disciples that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And it shocked the disciples. Then who can be saved? And Jesus said, with man, it is impossible. But all things are possible with God. And so here is Jesus praying what he has preached and what he has demonstrated. All things are possible. He prays this to his father, to his Abba, without doubt. There is no unbelief in him at all. He is demonstrating the way that God wants us to pray, believing completely. He is praying just the way the father wants to be prayed to. And so to that person... And to that prayer, that should get God's yes. It's his beloved son who has done nothing wrong, who is praying in perfect faith and trust. The answer should be yes. But he gets no. He gets no. More shocking It's not, no, I can't. It's, no, I won't. Do you know the difference? When you say, no, I can't, it's out of your hands. It's awful, but I can't do anything. You have to have your shots. I can't do anything. And so I have a certain amount of peace in that. But that's not the case here. All things are possible for the Father. And so when he says no, he is not saying it is out of my power. He is saying it is out of my will. I won't take this cup from you. You see, this is the magisterium tremendum. It is awful. It is awful that the beloved son is begging the father, deliver me from this cup I don't deserve. It is horrifying. 
But there's also something magnetic and fascinating about it. Because in all of this, God's will is being shown so clearly. He is saying, I won't to the son to say I will to the sinner. Does it make you tremble? It goes beyond my understanding. You see, this prayer that Jesus asks brings into history a decision that was made before creation. God's choice was always between saving his son or saving sinners. But he chose to create man. He chose to permit the fall. He chose, instead of bringing judgment, to say an offspring of the woman will come who will crush the head of the serpent. But his, his heel will be bit. You see, he chose all of that. He was free not to choose that. It has always been this. Either God chooses his son or God chooses the sinner. And at Gethsemane, it is brought right here into painful focus. God says, no, I won't to the son to say, yes, I will to the sinner. Even so, God is determined to save sinners. Think of these words that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he, God, the Father, made him, the beloved Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, who was righteous and perfectly pleasing, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We sinners full of unrighteousness might become the righteousness of God. See it in the moment of the relinquishment. Jesus has prayed, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Look up at verse 33. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. I don't think it's... it's, uh, It's a challenge to translate the Greek terms into appropriate English language. Greatly distressed, for some reason, just doesn't wow me. But it's it's more than that. It's, It's terror. We are being told that Jesus in this moment is in terror. He's horrified. Luke tells us that he is so distressed that his sweat includes blood. He is so distressed and troubled. In Hebrews, we are told Jesus at this time offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. This man 
has been brought to his limit. He is overwhelmed. He is crying. There are tears. There is terror in his eyes. And Jesus prays this three times. That means he heard no three times. He comes to his disciples again and again for, for, for strength and support, and they're sleeping. And yet, despite his terror, he prays, not what I will, but what you will. In those words, Jesus is telling us that to save us, Jesus must choose death. To ransom us, Jesus must take the cup. He must take his will and submit it to the Father's will who is holding out the cup. He says in, not my will, but yours be done, I will take the cup. Even so, Jesus is determined to save sinners. I appreciate uh, the theologian Donald McLeod who wrote a book on the, on the person of Christ. Uh, he has amazingly profound passages. He writes of the Garden of Gethsemane these words. Jesus would stand before that God answering for the sin of the world indeed identified with the sin of the world. Consequently, to quote Luther, no one ever feared death so much as this man. The wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear, but that for their sake he faced it terrified. Terrified by what he knew and terrified by what he did not know. He took damnation lovingly. In praying, yet not what I will, but what you will, we are seeing that greater than Jesus' life, greater than Jesus' fear, is his trust that God's will being done is best. Even if it means I am nailed to the cross. This is faith. This is knowing God's will is best even when it terrifies you. It is by faith in the Father that Jesus submits and relinquishes his own will, his own uh, uh, claim on life to his Father. They become united. It is not just the Father who says, I'm giving you the cup. It is equally the Son saying, I will drink the cup. They are one in their will to save sinners. Even so, the Father and the Son are determined to save sinners. Last, see it in the resolve. See it in the resolve. Jesus leaves Gethsemane resolved. Look at verse 41 with me. Verse 41, he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping 
and taking your rest. It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He gets up. He is resolved to drink the cup. It is enough. The hour has come. From this point forward, he goes without complaint. He goes without resistance. He is resolved to see to the end the will of the Father. He is determined that he will drink the cup to the dregs. Most importantly for us to see is that Gethsemane teaches us everything else that happens in the Passion happens because it is the will of the Son to receive it. He is not the victim. He is being obedient. The Passion is the extremest example of obedience that you have ever seen. We're told in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, Jesus being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, from this point forward, he does not stop the hands of sinners doing all the evil they can imagine. But we know from the Gospel of Mark that he has the power to stop storms, to quiet seas, to expel demons. He has the wisdom to confound the wise and silence the accusers. He has the authority to call upon legions of angels. But when we look at the rest of the story, he does not call down angels when they arrest him. He does not outwit the Sanhedrin when they question him. He does not defend himself to Pilate. He does not stop the whips when he is scourged. He does not vindicate himself in the taunts. He does not silence the mocking. He does not resist the nails. He obeys. He obeys in the pain. He obeys in the suffocating, in the darkness. He obeys in the absence of God's love. Turn with me to Mark 15 and look at verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where's Abba? Where's Father? Jesus has always prayed, Father. Jesus has always cried, Abba. But all he can muster in the darkness is, my God, my God, I know you are there, but I cannot feel you. I know you are there, but I cannot sense you. 
I know you are love, but I have none of it upon me. I have only wrath. I can only taste the cup. And he cries this, my God, my God. And it is not relented until the cup is empty. He obeys. Even so, God is determined to save sinners. And he has. Thank God he has. Galatians 3.13 tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see he is so determined to save sinners that he made his own beloved son a curse, the opposite of beloved, and hung him displayed upon a cross and did not relent until the cup was empty so that for you... And me, sinners who have committed our lives to the wages of death, might hear there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It is all at Gethsemane. The decision is at Gethsemane. We see it in the relationship. We see it in the request. We see it in the restraint. We see it in the relinquishment. We see it in the resolve. This is, this is the, the magisterium tremendum. It is awful. It is scary. It is, it is so disturbing that this happened. But at the same time, it is, it is also fascinating because it tells us God's will cannot be changed. Even when his son cries, Daddy, save me, his will to save you is not turned back. That is what Gethsemane teaches it is the magisterium tremendum. And I have to leave with two takeaways. First of all, it should be clear that because of this, there is only one way of salvation. There is no path of good works. There is no good philosophy of life. There is no back way up the mountain to heaven. There is one way of salvation. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus 
every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You will not find salvation. You will not find heaven. You will not find everlasting life because the one who stands as the one who is the only way is the son who was obedient to death. And only if you come to him and him alone can you be saved. Logic demands this. If there was any other way, any way at all for sinners to be saved, the cup would have been taken away. But because there is no other way, the cup was given and the cup was drunk. So I have to warn you, if you are continuing to waffle on the question of whether I'm going to give my life to this gospel, whether I'm truly going to commit and believe in this gospel, whether I'm going to take the humbling of repentance for my sins and accept the fact that, that, that I am not righteous, that the best I have ever done is filthy rags in his presence. And if you are not going to do that, you are choosing damnation. Because this is the one way, and Jesus did not make it a mystery. And if your heart is still hard against this message, I tremble for you. Because I don't know that I can preach this anymore clearly. I tremble at the thought that I ever will. The letter to Hebrews says this. If we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. What else could there be? But the second takeaway The second takeaway, in this salvation that has been agreed upon and committed to in Gethsemane, there is blessed assurance. There is great comfort and great security because you know that God will not change his mind. He will not turn away. He will fulfill his promise to save sinners who come to him. Listen to these words in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What greater assurance do you have to know that God will fulfill his promises to all who put their faith in Jesus than the fact that he said no to daddy save me so he could say yes to saving you? Can there be a more secure ground of your assurance than to know that even when the son asked, take it away, he said, no, my word to sinners will not be violated. I will save those who come to me. This is blessed assurance. 
It's not how good you are. It's not how little bad you have done. It's that God in his mysterious, holy love determined before the foundation of the world that I will save sinners by not saving my son. And because he did that, it is his grace alone that saves. And there is blessed assurance in that because his grace alone is determined to be upon you. You must simply receive the promise. The promise of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Take hold of God's promise and you will be saved. Amen? Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.